Today is June 4th, 2018, and Blake is really glad he's not reading the intro this week. Today we are talking about Robot Butlers, Las Vegas' last stand against the robot uprising, and a course about designing for evil. Go ahead and strap on that HoloLens to listen to the smooth oral cues of Human Factors cast. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Yeah, all right. That, uh, yeah, that intro was a little awkward. That's okay. That's okay. We're back. I'm back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're all back. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by my good friend and yours, Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Oh, the wonderful Nick Rome bringing us those smooth oral cues. How are you this week, man? Smooth oral cues. You like that? I, I, I love that. And it was, it's not O-R-A-L, it's A-U-R-A-L, in case you were wondering. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm good. I'm glad to have you back reading the intro and not me. Well, hey, I, before we begin, I just have to say, so I listened to last week's episode as a naive listener. Um, I was only involved with the story selection uh, piece of it. So, but you and Elise uh, basically just put on the shows yourself, and it turned out wonderful. I um, or at least from my perspective, I'm I'm sure some of our listeners feel the same way. But you guys really held down the fort. I was really happy with the way it turned out. Um, and it was it was a good listen. Honestly, it was it was a great time. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm glad. I hope others did as well. Elise and I had a lot of fun doing it, and it was really great to be able to throw in that interview that you and Woodrow had put together for us to share with the rest of the listeners. So that was a lot of fun all around. Uh, but it's definitely tougher with right, trying to be the one man show, you know, recording and putting all the sound in there and trying to make it all work. I mean, you work a lot of magic behind the scenes that I don't normally have to deal with. So. It was good. It was a good little fun experiment while you were out of town, and glad we could do it. But it's good to have you back. Yeah. So we're <clears throat> jumping into the banter. You mentioned I was out of time, out of town. So I actually went on vacation. Um, we uh, I went to Arizona for for uh, so my partner's younger sisters are graduating, and so we did the graduation thing, and then we um, in Arizona we went up to Sedona, uh, which is absolutely gorgeous, um, and then we went up to the Grand Canyon, and man, I have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? I have. I actually went uh, late last year for the first time. It, okay, so tell me, did you go to the North Rim or the South Rim? Uh, I don't remember to be completely honest. I want to say we went to both because we spent like a couple days in Arizona and we tried to do all things Arizona. Oh, okay. Uh, but I don't really remember. Matt, so do you, when you went, do you remember how there was kind of this one area with a railing and then you go a little bit and there's no railing? Oh yeah. I remember I went to two places, right? So one that did have like railing and kind of, you know, like mesh fences so little children sure. don't fall through but we actually went to another section of the park and i remember there was no rails anywhere and it was like trails down to the like very edge of the canyon and stuff like that and it was uh, kind of a nightmare for me being someone who's a little afraid of heights but yes i remember yes. seeing some uh some some safety features and some not so safety features right yes so i was absolutely blown away by the lack of safety <laughs> at a national park i mean i guess you know you you uh should be not stupid and and don't go to the edge if you feel like you're you're klutzy or whatever um but i was just astounded with how close some people were getting and like for me my advisor in grad school studied falling risk and uh so this this hit very close home to me because i'm obviously super involved with that and and to see so many people kind of ignoring all the safety precautions in place like they were going right up to the edge dangling their legs off and and taking a selfie dangling off the side like really okay that is uh it just gave me so much anxiety seeing some of these people um blatantly disregard their lives or are putting their lives in that much danger and i i know some people live for the adrenaline but th- it's just not my personality and i was i was actually just surprised to see the how much of a lack of uh sort of safety precautions there were because it, it wasn't that far out that you get the railing and then you don't get the railing and uh like i i can't even it's probably like half a mile of railing um or, or maybe a full mile on either side you know because uh, we went to mather point i think and uh there's like half a mile of railing from there on either side and beyond that you're you're on your own 
so that was kind of interesting to find. But then I, I looked online afterwards because I was like, oh, God, this looks so dangerous. How many people die a year? Do you want to take a guess at the average number of people that die at the Grand Canyon per year? Yeah, and I'm probably going to lowball this way too much. I want to say like 10. You're really close. Add two and you got it. Really? 12? Yeah. All right. Yeah, you got it. Um, I believe only three to four of those is due to falling, too. I think some of them are due to, like, heat risk or, or heat stroke. Oh, my goodness. Some of them are even due to, like, traffic accidents at the actual park. So they, they, they count all those statistics, and then they also count suicides um, separately from people accidentally falling, which makes sense uh, because, obviously, there's different intent there. Um, so... But yeah, I, I found it absolutely fascinating that only 12 people die a year. I mean, it's still morbid as hell, right? There's 12 people die a year in this place. Um, and that's one a month. So I, I don't know. It just kind of all, uh, it surprised me is all. I guess I, I just wanted to share that. I don't know. What, but what's, yes. been, what's been going on with you, Blake? Uh, not a whole lot, man. Actually, I was just going to throw one more thing onto the end of your point, right? And the safety thing kind of blew me away when I was out there and more so like because it's a family vacation spot. So you have like younger kids who just have no perception of fear at all. And so they'll want to do like crazier things like climb on the railing or where there's no railing, like hang off and stuff like that. So it all, it really surprised me just from like a, a general safety perspective that there wasn't more stuff to kind of like keep them from getting away from their parents. And if they did, they couldn't do too much harm to themselves. So that's pretty nuts. Um, yeah, I, I guess one more piece of that. I guess we keep going on about this, but one thing to me was just kind of how close I was to death. Like, I know that sounds kind of morbid, but kind of facing your mortality in a way that like if you took two steps, you know, in the wrong direction, you're you're gone. Like that's it. You're you're you know, you're toast. That's it. Like it was it was kind of a it was a it was an interesting experience for sure. <laughs> wow. That yeah, that's pretty nuts. Jeez, I don't even know. I can't even follow up with that one. But I do have something I wanted to share with you and the audience as well. And it's yes. actually a tool I've been using recently. Ooh. Yeah, so I'm not very... Maybe I've just grew up with too many word processors helping me you know, correct my spelling and whatnot. And I'm not a horrible writer, but I definitely have become very attached to the help of you know, like spell checkers and stuff like that. Um, and something that I am deathly horrible with when it comes to literary writing or just writing in general is that use of semicolons and making sure my commas are in the right place, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and so I've started using Grammarly because with the course that the courses that I teach for uh, about UX, like a lot of this stuff is like written correspondence either through email or on this um, on this online portal. So I, I, I'm trying to like catch as many mistakes so I don't have to reread things so many times because a lot of times I'm trying to do this like in on my lunch breaks or before I come to work in the morning. Uh, and actually an, an app extension for Chrome, and I'm sure they have other like avenues that you can use it, is called Grammarly, has really just changed my ability to quickly write out feedback and make sure I can spell check it and don't like make any weird errors. So I just want to throw that out there for everybody. It's pretty simple to use. And it actually has made me a better writer in terms of the punctuation type of stuff when it comes to like semicolons and commas. Uh, so it's just one of those quick and easy tools to kind of speed your day up. I'll have to check that out. Uh, so like, uh, is it just, does it give you the underline like Microsoft Word does if it's something weird? Yeah, or? it's the same kind of feel, right? It'll give you the like red underline or like um, it'll give you like a red highlight if it thinks like, hey, you should add in some punctuation here and it'll show it to you. And you, it's the same kind of deal. You can right click it and through the context menu, make decisions and that kind of stuff. So very, very similar feel to it. Um, but it's been like super helpful with emails and stuff like that. Cause I send a bunch throughout the day and I actually was going to use the desktop version for some of our work stuff to kind of like catch all that. Um, cause I, f- I find that it's a little bit better with like making sure your punctuation's correct than just like straight up, um, like Microsoft word and stuff like that. Well, speaking of emails, uh, <laughs> we got your emails and our winner for our t-shirt contest has been chosen and notified via email. So be sure to check that out to see if you won. I just want to thank everyone for entering and, uh, be sure to come back and check it out. We are going to be doing more giveaways in the future. So that's just a little, uh, hint, but, uh, we got a couple events coming up here. Got AHFE next month. 
uh, July 21 through 25. And our gracious, gracious listener, Logan Clark, he has actually been on the show before. If you recall HFES last year, he was the one who went to the Toyota factory. He's going to be out there on the scene, and he will uh, be helping us break down all the stuff coming out of AHFE. Uh, so we'll get some coverage there. HFES International, uh, it's in Philly. Uh, this year, October 1 through 5. Uh, we also got Ergo X. That's, what, Oct- uh, <laughs> September 31. It's it's the day before a- HFES. Um, that's coming up. We got HFES Australia coming to Perth. In Australia, that's uh, November 26 or 28. I know we say these every week, but we do have coverage for all these events, so you can look forward to some bonus episodes, bonus content. We're very excited to bring these this type of content to you. And if you know of any other conferences or events that are going on, even if it's something like a local chapter, please let us know. We want to get as much coverage as we possibly can of these events because our philosophy is very much no human factors practitioner left behind. We want to see all this content and we want to spread the word because uh, sharing is caring and you know the more we know the more we grow together and the more we can collaborate on these types of um, massive projects and you never know something coming out of these events could spark an idea in some of our listeners and uh, you know create a collaboration that you might never have known was possible I, I don't know I, I like sharing this information and and uh, it, I don't know we'll see where it goes but uh, just want to let everyone know that that stuff's coming up but Blake it's been two weeks for me. You know what we got to get into? Oh, do I get to read the news again? You get to read the news again. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything from medical, transportation, uh, you know, d- design, whatever. It doesn't matter. As long as it relates to the field of Human Factors, it is a fair game. Blake, what do we got up first this week? Well, our sweet home state of California is launching two pilot programs that will allow autonomous vehicles to pick up passengers in the state. One will let companies pick up passengers with self-driving cars as long as a safety driver is behind the wheel. And the other will allow passengers pick up without a driver in the autonomous vehicle, though the company will be required to have humans monitoring the cars remotely. The pilot programs required certain permits obtained from the Public Utilities Commission that decided that companies participating in these types of programs can't actually charge for the rides that they're providing. This move was made in order to differentiate these rides from other modes of transportation in an effort to encourage riders to be more mindful of their experiences and provide critical feedback to the commission and the permit holders. So, Nick, this is... This is not what I would have expected this week, especially in the past, like, I don't know, a couple of months. I feel like you and I have gone through the the problems with Tesla and the NTSB. And then last week, Lisa and I covered again kind of a follow up story about what's going on with Uber. And they're getting into more. They're having like more problems with their AI system. So this is really cool. Um, and I don't think the article actually mentions the two companies that are being brought in. But I can't believe this is actually getting put push through especially with all the kind of problems that we've seen in the past couple of months yeah and especially since you and elise last week talked about sort of the the trust in automation or in these uh autonomous vehicles has gone down over the past uh what six months or something because of all these incidents um i think it shows that you know it the government or at least california um they are sort of encouraging this because they know that there was a, I think Elise brought up the point last week of, you know, automation will save lives. Uh, automated vehicles will save lives. Or maybe it was you. I don't know. You got to forgive me. It's been a week. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, automation will save lives ultimately. And we sort of have to accept that uh, it will cause these fatalities in some situations. But but overall, overall, the the death toll will go, go down if, if, you know, all systems are autonomous. And so I think at least California is, is sort of pushing this agenda um, or, or at least being more open to it. Now I have a fun little side story. While I was in Arizona, I actually saw uh, one of the Waymo vehicles um, out there. And it, it was really funny cause it was on our way out of, of uh, the Phoenix area. And um, so I was following it as long as I could trying to trick the automation into, you know, so I was like cutting it off and then I'd go around the back of it and like push up against it to see how it would react. Uh, and I, I don't know, the driver behind the wheel kind of knew what I was doing. 
but Nick just stress testing the automation for a little fun yeah yeah you know but i mean so apparently in arizona though like um people who come into these vehicles like defecate and uh do weird stuff in these vehicles uh that are caught on camera um and and so i think that's part of the reason why there has to be some sort of monitoring going on here um but it's, oh, so you're not talking about like the the safety driver, quote unquote. You're talking about like passengers that would hop in the cars. Oh no, 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 no. I, the, there were the one that I was messing with had a driver in it. But I'm just saying, anecdotally, there there um, there are vehicles that I don't think it's the Waymo ones, but the, there are vehicles that um, don't require a driver in Arizona, and and you know passengers go do weird stuff in them. Um, so I I don't know, like it's. It's it's really cool to see that, you know, a state, especially our hometown, we can see this out on the road, maybe. I don't know. We're not in Silicon Valley, so we're not in the thick of the testing sites, but we it's possible that we could see this on the road now, uh, especially Southern California is a little bit more um, uh, densely populated than some of the other parts of the state, so we'll probably see some of it. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that the government's behind it speaks a lot, right? Like we're moving in a direction where uh, automated vehicles are becoming more and more commonplace. And this is just one sort of more step in the right direction, at least in my mind. Yeah. And I love that it's actually local governments that are kind of taking over this stuff. I mean, for, for California's perspective, right, we've got the public utilities commission that's kind of putting all these requirements in place where you have to have specific permits. You're not actually going to be charging for these services. We're, we're looking for serious feedback on what's going on with these vehicles. And the thing that I mentioned last week to Elise is I just, I've been questioning why we're still trying to stick with this model of having like a, even if you have like a safety driver in the car, like I think just over time, you're really potentially asking for like a lot of problems because she was really good about going through kind of like the four levels of situation awareness. And the, the problem with hopping back into the loop in an emergency situation, especially when you have, you know, maybe three seconds or less to kind of make a decision and then perform an action. So I, I really like the idea that they're also having a separate company that hopefully they're paying attention to kind of the data they're collecting, but they're having a separate company that's got humans monitoring cars remotely, and hopefully they have a lot more control over kind of what's going on within the car uh, from from the remote perspective. Uh, but I like that they've got like two options and two companies are actually willing to do this for free just to like get the test cases out there for California. Yeah, I agree. Um, I didn't realize that they were monitoring, like there was a separate company monitoring these remotely. I thought it was required that they either had some like uh, person in the vehicle or they were, you know, uh, monitoring remotely. I thought it was either or, but that's okay. No, I think it is. I think one company is just forcing like, uh, or one company has got somebody in the car and the other has got some just kind of remote um, either system or human remotely monitoring the car itself. Ah, I see. Okay. All right. Yep. I see it right here. I was mistaken. Okay, great. Well, that's cool. And the, yeah. <laughs> and I think the, the other good thing here is, that, and this is mentioned in the article, is also like I know Uber's had some problems in Arizona, right? But as, as far as like what Arizona's doing with the autonomous vehicle front, I mean, they're still like looking to launch a driverless car service using Waymo here in the next few months. I think it's like a taxi service. And I mean, Uber's still operating within within like the state itself and doing so with autonomous vehicles so i mean that's a that's a good sign too that even through like kind of tragedies and stuff like that you're still seeing a lot of companies or a lot of states kind of still trying to push the envelope with getting autonomous vehicles tested at least yeah yeah all good news all around uh well at least from our perspective um and from safety perspective too but uh why don't we get into the next one because this is also kind of automation yeah, this is automation on a completely different scale. So researchers are teaching machines to get stuff done using video simulations, a database of chores, and a virtual home reminiscent of your favorite time-wasting video game, The Sims. So what's the end goal? So teaching robots the same way you teach yourself how to install a toilet. Use instructional videos. So researchers from MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, or CSAIL, the University of Toronto and McGill University released a paper detailing the methods by which they taught computers how to accomplish a greater range of activities by simply watching instructional videos. The researchers used simulated videos with a variety 
with virtual human characters, along with a database of 3,000 crowdsourced tasks, tasks the program can choose. The AI then mimics these tasks along with everything that task entails, as seen in the video. Nick, I really cannot wrap my head around how this is actually working, but I think it is an amazing concept that you can use something like, you know, existing videos to try and teach an AI system how to, you know, basically do chores for you. Yeah, so let's be clear. This isn't this 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 uh, title of this article is a little misleading. It's a it's a robot in the sense that it's an AI. It's an agent in a virtual world. It's not necessarily a physical robot, right? So so basically, what this is doing is it is it is teaching an an uh, an agent uh, a virtual avatar that is not in, inhabited by a human um, these these chores uh, through training videos and documentation and um you know these these uh virtual agents as we will that we're referring to them as robots in this title they have certain points of articulation so um i don't know how many degrees of freedom but they they mimic uh, a human being so they are slowly but surely able to mimic the um the motions that a human might take to accomplish some of these these chores. Um, so basically what this is saying is you're teaching an artificial intelligence to do these things, but we don't yet have the body to, um, you know, replicate these motions in, in a physical environment to do these things. But what this is telling me is that we're ready for it. Once we do create these human-like robots that have the same amount of um, articulation, at least that these agents do, you know, and they may not have, um, you know, like the, the, they, they don't probably have the same kind of dexterity with the fingers. They probably understand, pick up the dish, rub the dish with a sponge uh, or, or, you know, put, put soap on sponge, pick up dish, uh, put soap underwater, you know, these types of steps, right. And, and in the correct order, but they, they lack sort of the dexterity that, humans do because they're not real robots they are virtual agents um so i don't know that's the best that i can sort of describe this this uh this study but it is still uh incredibly important especially for learning of um you know these these tasks that we sort of don't want to do as humans right the last thing i want to do is wash the dishes but if i could have a robot do it for me if i had one robot that could just roam around the house and do these chores vacuum uh clean the dishes make the bed um and plug into a wall when it's not being used and just you know get battery that'd be awesome it would take care of a lot of my my weekend right and i'd get all that time back um so it's cool that we're teaching these things how to do it, but the technology, the physical technology, I think is not quite there yet for us to be able to do it. So, so it's still promising, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's so it, the title is definitely misleading. Right. And so, it, so it's a little bit is the blurb because it, it gives you a little more hope that it's an actual robot running around the house. Like Roomba can act now get up and do the dishes or vacuum the house with you, just like giving it a command. But that's kind of the other uh, flip side to what's going on in this particular study. I mean, even though we're there, these artificial agents, as you put it, are basically watching videos and attempting to execute these tasks. You have to think of these tasks that they're getting as very like singular steps almost. Because if you tell some, if you tell like this virtual agent to you know turn on my TV, it needs to know like okay, what does that really mean? What set of steps do I have to execute in order to get there? Like I have to find the remote, press the power button, and point it towards the TV, just those kind of things. So it's not as simplistic as it sounds, but it's it's definitely an incredible move forward in the virtual reality world. And Nick, I think you're right. I think it's more so saying that once we get robotics to a place where they do have the necessary either degrees of freedom to move around the house or designs that allow, that, allow them to, you know, complete some of these chores or they've been tested with in like home environments uh, and the multitude of variables that come in with those environments, I feel like the the inner workings behind it has a good baseline to go off of. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, if you go, if you go to the C-Sale, um, uh, the, the original article, the, the teaching chores to an artificial agent, that's a little bit more of a, uh, of a, of an accurate, uh, representation of what's happening. You, you know, you do see sort of the, the, 
Sims character going in and turning on the TV. But this is all sort of uh, learned behavior. This is not something that's pre-programmed. They've they've learned how to perform these steps to do this. Um, and, you know, they do show this in a variety of different settings, different house layouts, different types of avatars. So it's cool that this, this technology is in place. I just, you know, once we get that physical robot, man, then we can just port this over and boom, all our, all our chores are solved. <laughs> so I don't know. In that sense, it's promising, but uh, show, me, show me the hardware that is going to do this and I will be a lot happier. Yeah, I mean, I think the adaptability of what you're talking about is really, really awesome. And I, it's almost hard to believe that it's possible. I mean, because you're right. It's not like these, they're just memorizing steps or having to be having to go through learning each step over and over. They just, they learn them. And actually, it sounded like from the little blurb that we have from Gizmodo that they're actually able to, in some instances, kind of like pick up and make a, take their baseline instance of a task and like adapt to it. Like say, if you were, told it to read a specific book or pick up a specific item it would be able to abstract a little bit um with its like basic mental basic mental model that might not be the right turn of phrase here but their basic mental model of how a task works so a lot of promising work it's just let's let's get a body to this and see how it goes yeah and i'm also wondering sort of how robust these virtual environments can simulate something like Obviously, there are certain tags associated in a virtual environment with remote, but how can a um, can a physical uh, piece of hardware, a robot, if you will, uh, can they identify a remote in various uh, you know orientations? Can they identify a remote that has fallen between the cushions in a couch? Can they identify a remote that's in a completely different context? Like, let's say you walk out of the living room and you put the remote on the kitchen counter. Can they, will, how will they find, are they able to find it first off? Um, you know, and how long will it take them? Like what kind of heuristics are in play and how long does it take them to do this task? Because if you tell your robot Butler, Hey, turn on the TV, well, do they just walk up to the TV and press the on button or do they look for the remote, you know, that, you know, is on the table? And that's a quicker thing. They pick up the remote, press the on button or how long do they time out before they go up to the TV and press the button because it'll take too long? You know, like there's all these other parameters of these chores, if you will, that that take a little bit more like washing dishes is easy. Presumably, all the plates will be in the same place uh, if you're good about that, right? If not, then the plates are scattered throughout the house. So there's this whole other task of locating dirty dishes and carrying them to the dishwasher or the, the sink if you're not fortunate enough to have a dishwasher. Um, and then, you know, putting them in, organizing them in a, such a way that they're uh, you're able to fit the maximum amount of dishes in or you know there's a lot of different things that go on with this so i'm wondering uh you know are, are they able to abstract to that next level and what kind of sensors would that take yeah and the, when you talk about the sensors that's going to take and the abstracting of the task i mean that's an entire i don't know that's that sounds like an entire i don't know couple of years of work in terms of research to try and figure out but i mean then in addition to that you've got to think of how they're mapping to each house yeah and how they're able to even navigate and move around the house much right. less find the items that they need and can uh, they can they incorporate some heuristics like oh they always tend to leave their plates on the side of the bed or on the the couch in the living room so i'm going to check those places and if nothing's there then maybe then I go and wash all the dishes. And if I happen to do another task and notice something, then I interrupt that task and take the plate into the kitchen. Like there's a bunch of different uh, situations in which this could be um, thought through. But, uh, but what's nice is that they're doing it in the virtual environment. So that way when the technology is ready in the physical environment, they just need to bring over that, that uh, program, that, that artificial intelligence. And uh, it's all good. Presumably. Yeah, and I wonder if, like, from a navigational standpoint, they would be able to, you know, map your house and just kind of feed that into the the AI system just to like learn that as well. I think it. I think that's got to be sort of a necessity, right? Because I mean that they're navigating through the house to perform these tasks, and they they even show in the video that there are a variety of different layouts. So I, I would assume that that is part of it. Yes, I I don't know. I can't wait. And the one thing that I I think would be 
almost overwhelming, right? Is if you, you've got a robot in your house doing tasks, like let's say dishes or looking for the remote. And if it was to, at some point, if it runs into a problem, if it's to ask you if you know where something is or if you know where you last put it, like I just think that there's also like some interaction with the human element to it that, I don't know, it just all blows my mind to think about that it's, it's, it's not necessarily here today, but it doesn't mean it won't be here in the near future. I, for one, will fork up a lot of money for a robot butler. That would be awesome. But some people are not so keen on uh, <laughs> artificial intelligence and robots taking their jobs. Isn't that a good segue? I like that segue. Ah, Nick with the transitions today. Woo! Woo! All right, man. So we get into the next story, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a segue. <laughs> Let's do it. All right, so more than 50,000 union workers in Las Vegas are set to go on strike if new contracts are not settled in June. And at the top of the list concerns for the culinary and bartenders unions is protection against robot replacements. So union workers have voted to partake in a citywide strike to secure their jobs and prevent automation from creeping into the workplace and stealing their work. They support innovation, of course, and that it improves their jobs, but they the unions oppose automation when it destroys those jobs. Their industries must innovate without losing the human touch, and that's why employees should work along with unions to stay strong and fair and competitive. Now, it's a quote from the unions themselves. And, you know, Nick, it, this is... I feel like this is not going to be the only one of these that we see over the next little while because there is a lot of potential for automation and the automation of tasks or introduction of robots over the next few years to really change the landscape of how how people's jobs exist. I mean, even the, the autonomous vehicle field, I mean, I think I heard some statistic where it's nearly, I don't know, 40% of some, some odd males in the United States, like, drive for a living in some capacity so i mean replacing that over the next 10 20 years what what happens to those people and thinking about that stuff is probably pretty difficult yeah i i don't know i'm i don't know if it's just because of our our nature of our work but i tend to err on the side of you know what if robots take our jobs we'll adapt we'll adapt uh, technology takes jobs all the time right like we'll adapt and if you know, robots taking culinary jobs in these restaurants uh, means, you know, it, it kicks out all the chefs. Well, then the chefs can adapt by creating these new recipes to feed to the to the robots to make those things, right? So that they can create some sort of template and they then focus on sort of the margins of error. Like what is the acceptable margins of error you can say like this many tablespoons but sometimes there are margins of error with that like you know how that's that's to me how the job will change and sure there will be less jobs available overall um but they'll they'll find other avenues right it's like the way that we're going right children are coding in schools now and that's really encouraging to me because now instead of being a chef, you're going to be a coder for a chef thing. Uh, you're you're going to be a coder for a chef robot, and maybe maybe you know culinary uh, arts is your passion, and so, but you also know how to code. And what does that say for the people who are in the field now? Well, unfortunately, you know they'll have to find something else. But in the future, like it, it just makes sense to me that these things go on together you you do the thing that you're passionate about but you sort of use coding and um programming these robots for the thing that you're passionate about i don't know to to me maybe maybe i'm less sort of calcified in my um in my way like how would i feel if a robot did my job well we're already starting to see that blake you know we 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 have these these uh, artificial intelligence systems sort of suggesting where the optimal places to put these uh, UI elements or something, you know, we're starting to see that now. And how would I feel if something were to take my job? Well, our role then becomes an auditor, right? Or, or feeding that information in the first place. So I, I don't think I'd necessarily be opposed to it, right? Because the, we're still doing our job. It's just in a different capacity. And while I get the fear that these things will take their jobs, these robots, this technology, 
I don't I, I think as a as a human race we'll be okay. I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a tough one to talk about, right? Or or maybe it's not. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it, but mostly what I lean towards and this is in part of this specific article in one of the areas and it talks about like this this new like uh contract they're trying to put in place. At least like I think it helps them out for they've been trying to like get it put together for 5 years, but ultimately it says over the next 20 years automation will take our jobs. Well, if you're thinking that far ahead, which is great, and you should be, because long-term thinking is a good idea, especially as times are changing and technology is being integrated into all sorts of workplaces. I mean, I can't even imagine a robot bartender, but I can see it. Um, If you have that much time and you know it's coming, there should be a way for you to build into your life either trying to make some kind of career switch, which I completely understand that that's not the easiest thing to do, but there are so many more outlets now that exist that allow you to either keep pursuing your passion in a different format, like a podcast or like you shooting YouTube videos about the stuff that you do um, and stuff that you cook in the kitchen or drinks that you make. Like there's a lot of different ways that you can go about either teaching others or making money or like Nick said, getting very versed in understanding technology or starting a business that is really focused on like, Hey, I have this very specific culinary style. Let's put just put together a series of applications or, you know, background for AI systems that helps me kind of integrate my passion into technology, even if I can't code myself or don't have any interest in that. So I just, I feel like there's still enough time and people having enough self-awareness of what's coming that there's adjustments that can be made. Um, And on the flip side of that, like it it is absolutely scary that at some point, a lot of jobs may not be an option for people anymore. And it's, it's kind of been a, either a mode of living or let's say like truck driving has been running in your family for decades. And now you've got to figure out something else to do. But I think with everything that we see in the news technology wise and what Nick and I try and convey in the, or little stories that we talk about, like technology is ever changing and uh, being ahead of the curve. I think we have enough time to kind of figure out different paths to continue to like have a livelihood, but maybe not necessarily in the exact thing that you're doing right now, right this second. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't know. I, it's nice to see, you know, so many people like 50,000. That is a lot of people who are afraid of this thing. And that's just in one city. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know what this will prompt. Will this prompt other cities and other you know unions to to rise up and say no? We don't want robots to take our jobs. And and I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It's it's uncharted territory. And it's um, I I don't want to sound like a negative Nancy about this, but let it go. Gee, like let it go. I might. I don't know. I might be singing a different tune when robots are taking my job, um, but let it go. Just find some, find some other way. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, with people with mortgages or if they're like taking care of family members, I see a lot of instances where this can be problematic. And yeah. I, I think that it makes sense. That they're trying to like fight for some amount of time to kind of secure themselves. Right. But the, the problem at the end of the day is like, okay, do that. Um, do what you need to do to make sure that you're like, you have the time to make the adjustments, but you have to make the adjustments. You can't just like continue on doing what you've been doing for the past X number of years because you know that you have like this a lot of time to kind of get through and still be able to like make money and stuff like that. Like you have to start planning and making changes. Yeah. All right. Well, I just want to thank all of our friends over at Engadget, Gizmodo, and TechCrunch for all of our stories this week. If you guys want to follow along, you can follow us all over social media or join our Slack for links to the original articles. And we post them most of the time as we find them. This week was a little different since I was out on uh, leave. But, Blake, what do we got up next? All right. So whether it is surveilling or deceiving users, mishandling or selling their data, or engendering unhealthy habits or thoughts, unethical unethical behavior is pretty widespread in tech. Fortunately, though, University of Washington is equipping its students with philosophical insights to better identify and hopefully fix tech's damaging lack of ethics through a course called Designing for Evil. 
Students learn the critical skill of inquiring into moral and ethical implications of those apps and services that they help build. The premise is that students are given a crash course in ethical philosophy, and as it turns out, finding out the ethical problems in tech is definitely the easy part, and the fixes for them range from trivial to almost impossible. The value in the class is that it has the ability to look at the fundamental ethical soundness of a business or technology and be able to articulate it. And with any luck, this course and anything, any courses like it in the future will be able to bring awareness to ethics in business and technology, leading to fewer services aimed at taking advantage of consumers. Oh, man, that was a mouthful. But, Nick, I think this is a definitely needed class, and I'm glad the University of Washington is stepping up to do it because I we're seeing more and more kind of the problems of how data is exploited or mishandling of people's identity and stuff like that. And I, f I think courses like this kind of getting it in at the ground level when students are still in college and really understanding how it applies to business is an important skill to have when you come into the workforce. I love this story. I, it's, um, it's interesting though, because I don't know in what curriculum this class is offered. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember if the article itself actually says, but um, you want to check on that while I, while I articulate my thoughts here. Um, so this class is a great idea. The issue I have with it, like, well, look, like let's, let's talk about why this is such an important class, right? It, it sort of highlights how to design for um for ethics and that is something i think especially now that's topical like with google and their employees pulling out of that uh pentagon contract where you know some some of their employees didn't really feel comfortable with what they were doing and also you know the whole thing with facebook and and how um really it is it is a predatory sort of uh uh application program whatever you call it it's a predatory thing where it's it's based off interaction social interaction with others and likes and comments and all that stuff and and um bringing light to these types of things can i i believe will will make the world a better place for a lack of a of a you know better term but honestly the 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 problem i have with this course is who it's designed for i feel like this is a design thing and sure you know designers have <clears throat> a big say of things before they go out the door right that they're, they're, they're in charge of the final design but it's the people who are higher up that are making the decisions that will ultimately impact other people right um you know the ceos of a company or or the leads of these departments are the ones who are driving the vision and I feel like it is important for those people, more importantly than the designers, to take these types of classes. And oftentimes, those people, uh, for better or for worse, um, you know, they they sometimes find pathways to CEO and uh, and higher up positions through alternative means, being you know a family member of somebody in the business or through um you know just starting out of your garage and learning how to code like not saying that's the wrong path but they're not getting this training and i don't know I, that's that's my problem with i think this is a great idea right it's just a matter of who it's being targeted for yeah, I mean, I think it's a great idea. And no, Nick, I didn't find specifically what class it's targeting or what like group of people. It seems like they're putting it on as kind of like a pilot study almost. Like this is, it's been its first quarter, I think at the end of June here or the beginning of June. Uh, so it's kind of just out there. But I know the, the primary text is from a Stanford uh, philosophy teacher. So I don't know if it's specifically in philosophy, if it's open for a lot of different types of people to take, but I know they do. It looks like from the article, they do a lot of kind of analysis of websites and kind of determining based on what they learn in the class, like, Hey, how ethical or unethical or what range of ethicality do, does this website or app kind of uphold to? And I think, I think like, like anything, it's good to have this ability to see these things and critically think about it. But I feel like, um, 
feel like where I struggle with this class is great. Okay, everybody has the an idea or gets a crash course and kind of ethical philosophy, and maybe you're able to identify problems. But even says in the article, like that's that's kind of the easy part. I mean, a lot of us have a built-in moral compass, either from how we were raised or just things we've grown over time into as adults. And really, the problem is, what? How do you fix it? So how do you talk to the CEO or how do you tackle the problem within the company at large? And I, you hit on a really good point. I mean, this is geared at students. Um, and at the same time, I mean, I think eventually if it's if it's kind of prolific enough or it works or it kind of creates, you know, like minded people, they can either they could be the ones starting startups in their garage or they're eventually going to be that group of people that have to take over a business just because as time goes, they get older and that's who is going to be running these kinds of businesses. But you're definitely right. I mean, there's people out there who are either just like really, really good at it, being able to convince people of, of their ideas and that's how they're able to get funding, um, whether it's whether it's very being truthful or not. So it doesn't necessarily fix the problem like today, but I think in a longevity sense, it does a, a good job. And I think being able to not just find these ethical problems, but being able to articulate it to your CEO or to, you know, members of your board is really important, whether you're a brand new designer or you're somebody who's been at a company for 10 years. I think the, the ability to articulate what you're trying to get across is really important. And that I think we're yeah. in a hopeful situation where you're seeing companies like, like what you mentioned with Google, like pulling out of a contract because we don't feel really comfortable with what we're doing. And that's based on employees. That's not necessarily like Google itself made this decision. It's it's based off of a small few. Right. You know, and I think this gets at a bigger issue of not necessarily like there's uh, th- there's a thought going around. And let me know if you agree or disagree with it, Blake. But disagree. You disagree with this. Well, let me let me tell you what the thought is before you go ahead and spout, <laughs> spout out an answer. <laughs> there's a thought out there that you know, all um, uh, public grade school, this is this is an American problem, uh, or, or at least from our perspective, you know, friends across the pond may have a different perspective. But there's uh, there's a thought that in grade school, uh, K-12, you should learn, um, you know, the, the basics of retail. Uh, so that way you treat other human beings with kindness and respect. And... Um, you know, I almost feel like this is kind of the same thing. I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily designing for evil because designing is its own sort of thing. But I, I definitely feel like there should sort of be this consumer awareness um, philosophy class, if you will, in in K-12 systems, because that will not only inform the people who are designing this stuff, but also it will inform the people who are using this software and be able to identify when they're being taken advantage of and and sort of how to not give their data when it's not beneficial for them you know so so the people who are using the systems are aware of the ethics as well i think this is a great concept i just think it needs to be introduced earlier because everybody especially now is using this technology that for better or for worse is is uh tied to ethics i mean that's just my two cents i think i think it should be introduced much earlier on and um you know it's something that that kids growing up now are going to have to uh hopefully be much more savvy about where their understanding of what their data means and what sort of things are being exploited about that data and how it's being used. I don't I don't know. I, I just feel like there should be some sort of consumer awareness course. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are very unaware of what's going on. And it's only through instances like what we've seen with Facebook is the biggest one because I'm sure you just like me have seen your inbox full of or every time I open an app, like everybody's changing their, their kind of privacy policies and trying to make people feel more comfortable with the data that is being collected. Hey, on that so note, I mean, Human Factors Cast has updated our privacy policy. If you want to find out, no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, if only. But I mean, I I agree with you. I, I remember taking my first actual philosophy class in college and wondering, like, where was this when I was in high school at the very least? But like it earlier would have been great because I don't know. I, I think it really helped try and figure out some of the, the more critical thinking skills and going through like thought experiments, things like that. Um, but definitely the ethical 
portion of it, it really just it, may, it gives you a different lens to view the world through and how you kind of like challenge the the systems that you're dealing with. So I, I definitely agree with you. I think having it earlier would be a, a good and beneficial thing. Um, it, it's just one of those that I'm just I'm not completely sure how you solve these kind of problems, right? Because I, I don't know if it's at such a scale that we see this kind of only way I know to describe it, I mean, they call it evil, but I call it like kind of malicious business intent or something like that. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you kind of eradicate that because money seems to, and we're now we're getting, I'm getting off into a tangent that's in a different world, but money seems to be like the ultimate corruptor, right? And so it, it looks really good to, you know, jump into a company and you, you know, kind of the premise of what they do. And then you find out like, uh, this is not what I really signed up for, but the amount of money they're paying me is allowing me to, you know, live a life that I would never have been able to live otherwise. So then you're just in a moral conundrum with your own kind of well-being. And then if you have people that depend on you, that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a tough problem that go that I think reaches farther out from just being able to identify unethical actions within companies and then try and solve them as like an end of one. I think it's a, uh, it's a culture thing that has to be worked on. I agree. All right, we got one more story. Let's get into it. Let's go. All right, so Microsoft's HoloLens has an impressive ability to quickly sense its surroundings, and new research shows that it works quite well with as a visual prosthesis for those with vision impairment. It works by guiding them in the... Re- in real time with audio cues and instructions and researchers from Caltech and University of Southern California argue that restoring vision is not a realistic goal. However, providing tools that replicate the practical portion of visual perception definitely is. So crunching visual data and producing a map of high level features like walls, obstacles, and doors is one of the more, one of the core capabilities of the HoloLens. So the team decided to, to do the to do this and recreate the environment for for the user from these extracted features, they designed the system around sound and every major object and feature can and feature and can tell where the user is, whether via voice or sound. So Nick, this this Hololens concept has come up over and over again, and not just in like the the working context. It's now really being used, like geared towards more of a being accessibility tool, which is an awesome kind of bend of its functionality. Those smooth oral cues. Yeah, I I, uh, I love this story because we always, uh, well, at least I when I look out for stories, I try to pull out these ones for accessibility because it's largely something that we don't think about. Um, or, it, you know, those of us who work with very specialized um, demographics, uh, it's something that we don't necessarily think about. So I, I always like to bring it back up and see how the tools that we're using for other things can be used for those who are impaired. Um, and visual impairment is something uh, very near and dear to my heart. You and I both wear glasses, so it's something that, you know, I can't see without my glasses. Um, I mean, I can make out shapes and colors, but beyond that, I'm I'm useless. Uh, so I, I completely sort of sympathize with the people who, who can't use their vision for much at all. Um, so so something like this is the, the, the researchers at Caltech and USC, they're basically saying that, you know, this, this piece of technology is already um, mapping the environment. And so why not translate that into these auditory cues to allow people to navigate through it? And, you know, uh, one example that I liked that they're using in, in um, or that they talked about here is that, you know, walls emit sort of this white noise hissing sound as a user approaches them. So it's all very passive, um, but it allows the user to orally scan the scene, right? So this is, this is all really cool stuff. And I, I, I really like the direction that this research is going. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on it, Blake? Well, the fact they mentioned it's just a prototype, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. I mean, I, it seems like they've already really kind of gone through some of the harder parts of really being able to identify the spatial environment for somebody using this. And if they think their goal is like at least giving people some more practical, uh, giving back the some of the per- visual perception tools that they lack, I mean, I feel like there's a giant like area for utility for this kind of stuff because i mean we've talked in the past about apps that kind of do a similar thing right not not the same exact uh giving you some of the more like spatial cues but at least trying to give you spatial cues as you walk like down the street and giving you directions about where to go um and this this seems like it would be a little more 
useful in terms of like it's something you can strap on and then you'd be able to like walk around with and it would help you orient your environment without too much um too much like messing around with anything like on your phone or anything like that so it's it's got a lot of potential for sure i'm just amazed at the versatility of the hollow lens to be completely honest i mean i love the accessibility spin that's always one of my favorite things to see on the show but just like the versatility of this device that microsoft developed i can't even imagine like if they ever thought it would be used more outside more outside of like the industrial workplace where it's kind of projecting tools for people yeah onto their ocular field versus like almost not necessarily giving people their vision back, but providing some kind of visual aid that wouldn't exist otherwise. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, but we are, you're tight on time. You want to go ahead and get into that next segment? Let's go. All right. This is. It came from. It came from. That's right. It came from Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you topics the community is topping, talking, topping about any subreddit's fair game as long as it relates to human factors and encourages discussion among the community. Blake, we got time for one tonight. Which one you want to do? One, two, or three? Ooh, I don't know, man. This is a tough one. This one, th- there's a lot of good ones tonight. Um, yeah, there's three pretty great ones that would all be fun to answer. Uh, I don't know, man. Do you have any kind of apps off the top of your head you want to talk about? Uh, no, let's go with number three. All right. Number okay. three it is. All I'm right. I'm glad you picked this one. So this is a question for folks who use the SUS or system usability scale. So, uh, let's see. Who is this by? I don't even know. We didn't put it on there. Oh, it's okay. Um, <laughs> you want to find that for me, Blake? <laughs> I'll read this. Sure. So this is how transparent are you with results inside and outside of your organization? question mark we are gearing up to use summative measures as a way to fill in the backlog and maybe less a measure of success or some such his words not mine uh our sales folks really want this stuff but i don't want them to have it because they will turn it into something it's not customers should definitely not have access to it but we want them to know we do some sort of benchmark benchmarking per project folks who use this how do you deal with the results have you been burned this was posted by XO on uh, presumably the user experience subreddit. So, Blake, do you use the sus? Have you been burned by it? How do you deal with marketing uh, or other teams using the sus score? And uh, what what are your thoughts on all this stuff? This is an interesting problem, Nick, because I'm having to hold back a little bit of my tongue, I think. Uh, but anyway, so the... I have not had sus experience really outside of the research realm. So I've used sus a bunch of times and I've used it more in the kind of accessibility research that I've done in the past. I've used it a couple times in my current job in the past as well. It's just kind of like an analysis of a system based on kind of like aggregate score from various, various either participants or that kind of stuff. But I haven't had to really share it with people within the same company because they talk about like the sales folks want the stuff, but they don't really want to give it up to them. Um, and at the same time, I'm unsure about this customers not understand, not having access to it either. I, I think I'm really confused by this question, Nick, because from if, even if I can kind of abstract the customer point of view, right? So when, whenever I would use the sus, I had to walk people through whether it was participants or people that had used a real system, uh, basically what the sus was like, Hey, I'm going to give you a system usability scale. This is the things that it's looking at. It's going to ask you a few questions, um, and just answer them as truthfully as possible based on your experience. And so they would have to have some understanding or baseline knowledge of, I guess, what the sus was. Now, if they're really getting more concerned about how you're using it from like a computational aspect, because I know there's a lot, some people don't like how it's, co- how it's, how you compute it and they don't necessarily like the percentage score. That's a different topic, I think. Um, so I don't have a whole lot of great feedback for this person. I mean, I would definitely, explain it to customers uh, just because I think it's 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 good information for them to have and understand um, as far as like the sales folks I, I kind of get that sometimes you can have these scores changed on you depending on the folks that get a hold of them but I, I don't know a big proponent of really sharing knowledge throughout company departments even if it's not the same department you work in and kind of like sharing how people would use it so I can't really 
I can't really give them any way around this, but I and I definitely have been burned by it in the past. And I've used I use this in a in a startup setting uh, was probably the most recent time that I used it. I mean, it was adopted by by people that are still there after I had left. And I mean, it was used by other departments. So I, I really am not the best person for this one, unfortunately. Nick, what do you got for them? Okay, so let's back up and, and well, at least what I use the SUS for is communication. Um, the SUS, uh, you know, take it or leave it, it is a way to measure system usability and holistic usability. And part of the beauty of the SUS is... Um, the fact that it, re- it it returns this singular value by which you can compare your system to other systems. Now, I will strongly disagree with you, Blake, that you do not want to give this to customers. Um, you, you don't, because imagine you're using my app, and my app is an Excel competitor. Um, and I have... Uh, you know, published my SUS score and you can see, oh, it is, it performs worse than Microsoft Excel. So why would I, as a consumer, use it, use your product over somebody else's? So from a business perspective, I would keep it internal. Um, however, that being said, the beauty is in communicating results and to communicate sort of the, um, the results of the SUS to your marketing team, that to me sounds fine, but just be clear about how you're communicating that. Be sure to say, look, this is how it stacks up to other systems, right? Uh, Microsoft Office gets this, um, and our program got this. Uh, We need some improvement. Um, It's also a good benchmark for uh, how your system has improved over time. So last fall, we were doing this with update 1.x, and now we're at 1.xx, and we're doing this much better. Um, I, It is a matter of how you present this to other people in your company. Because to me, the SUS is primarily used for communication with those people who don't understand um, usability methods and, and metrics. It is It is a way to communicate how good the system is doing um, without, you know, getting into all the intricacies. Well, these people performed these tasks good and not these tasks. And, and, uh, you know, there, there were, um, a variety of different factors, you know, instead of that verbose explanation, you are just whittling it down to one number. Look, this is how we did. Um, and being able to effectively communicate what exactly the sus is and what it means, that is the most important part of it, I think. Uh, so I don't, I don't know what now with my two cents, what are, do you have any rebuttal? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't necessarily agree that I, I mean, cause of course you're not going to really show the sus to a customer if it has a negative impact on you, but I still, I've seen it used before across customers in comparison of your product to others in which your score is higher. Um, oh, sure. and also to customer can mean various different things. So it could be your end customer, or if you have somebody that you're contracting for, for usability tests, that's, a, that's another type of customer that I've shown it to and had to explain it to for the exact reasons you just went over. So, I mean, of course you're not going to, you're going to hide it if it's negative. Um, yeah. but I real the one thing that I just don't understand is the not, re- I understand you think it's a communication tool, but I would still share it with the sales team and the marketing team. I mean, even yeah. if they don't, necessarily understand usability metrics you should be able to understand how the sus works well yeah i completely and, agree with that i i think you know it's it, like i said it is a communication tool and you're communicating it with sales or um you know some of the, the other departments I, I just communicating what it is as well that's that that was my point sure okay is that it are we done that's it we're done all right all right let's get out of here there's the music <laughs> that's it for today everyone let us know what you guys think of the stories this week did you like them did you hate them let us know if you have any suggestions for topics or news stories that you think we may have missed you can follow us all over social media join the discussion in our slack head on over to the human factors cast linkedin facebook or twitter at attractors podcast be sure to check out our soundcloud and leave us a comment over there or send us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com Leave us a voicemail at 901-646-1432. That's 901-646-1HFC. If you like what we're doing and want to support us financially, you can support us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash humanfectorscast. Got some good rewards for you up there. Be sure to like, subscribe, review us on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, or whatever your favorite podcast directory is. And and remember, check your email. We've picked our winner. (laughs) And, of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfectorscast.com. Mr. Blake Arnsdorf, thank you for hanging out with me today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about the sus? 
You guys can find me across social media. Don't panic, UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Nick underscore Rome. Remember, guys, till next time, it depends. There it is. Oh, it, it does de- depend. Depends. I did that a little differently. I, I usually say thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast until next time, right? I do that. And then it was different this time. All right. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.